North Korea poses the most urgent national security threat currently facing the United States. Aggression by its regime is not new, but recent progress North Korea has made in developing its nuclear weapon and missile programs, despite years of sanctions from the international community, is causing great concern and a threat really to all Americans. Today on The Hot Dish, I talk with two experts about North Korea to better understand the threat and our options on how we should deal with it. We'll start out talking about the history of the United States' relationship with North Korea to understand how we got to where we are now, and then we'll talk about the options to deal with North Korea. First up, we have Scott Snyder, an expert on Korea studies and director of the program on U.S.-Korea policy at the Council on Foreign Relations. Previously, Scott founded and directed the Center for U.S.-Korea Policy at the Asia Foundation and has worked at the Center for Strategic and International Studies Specific Forms and the U.S. Institute of Peace. That's a long title, Scott, um, and I, I, I'm so grateful you're here. And I think that so many North Dakotans, their experience with Korea really goes back to the Korean War. We have a lot of Korean War vets who now are in their late 70s, early 80s, who believe that they went there to stabilize the region and now are wondering um, whether whether uh, uh, we're going to see um, uh the United States once again being asked to sacrifice lives on that peninsula. They're deeply concerned about the aggression that they see. And they also are wondering, what are our options? But I think before you can really talk about options, you have to really understand how you got there. So I think right now, I'd, I'd love to know, um, from your perspective, how do we get to the point of so much hostility? Why does it seem like they have singled out the United States in North Korea? And how would you do describe North Koreans um, and the North Korean government to our listeners? Okay, well, you know, the relationship between the United States and North Korea is probably the longest-running uh, hostile relationship that we have had uh, as a country. Uh, in some ways, we were already uh, in a hostile relationship with North Korea before North Korea even was established in the late 1940s uh, because between the end of World War II and 1948, when North and South Korea were established as separate states, uh, the atmosphere of the Cold War between the U.S. and Soviet Union was already occurring, and North Korea was the client state of the Soviets. Uh, South Korea was basically the client state of the United States. Uh, and in the context of this uh, combination, really, of uh, tension between the U.S. and Soviet Union uh, and a civil war competition between the two designated leaders on both sides, uh, Koreans, um, we ended up in this pathway that led to the Korean War. Well, it's 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 incredible, and I, I just have to mention this, and it's probably a plug for the PBS series on Vietnam. When you watch the first uh, episode, there's a lot of discussion about all of Asia, and it includes a discussion about um, the peninsula in North and South Korea. When did they become divided, or were they ever um, one one uh, country? Well, the, the the Korea had been unified before they were taken over by Japan. And then at the end of the war, uh, essentially the U.S. and the Soviet Union uh, drew a, 
uh, an agreed-upon line uh, across the Korean Peninsula that defined areas of occupation. Mm -hmm. Similar to, to what happened in Germany. Uh, yes, there's a lot of similarity to that. Um, and, and so, essentially, the uh, Soviet forces came into the northern part of Korea. The Americans came into the southern part of Korea. Uh, and then, uh, as time passed, uh, both sides kind of picked leaders uh, designed to rule really on a temporary basis. Um, but then, because of the Cold War, the situation hardened. Um, actually, there was the intent to have a nationwide plebiscite to vote into power a, um, a unified Korean government, uh, but that became more and more difficult and the division hardened and basically two separate states were formed uh, in 1948. And then, well, of course, two years later, we had and, and 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 when you look at the the Korean War and you look at um, uh, the the uh, response that we had, which was you know really creating unified state, um, it really was China coming to the aid of North Korea that resulted in uh, uh, the the condition that we have right now. And I think it's important to explain the Chinese involvement in North Korea from a historic standpoint, so people understand the difficulties we have today, um, uh, working and, and relying on China as our sole source of um, diplomatic solution to what the, the challenges that we have today on the peninsula. Yeah, well, that's right. I mean, at the, uh, at, at the time of the Korean War, um, uh, actually, initially, the North Koreans drove southward. Uh, then MacArthur made his famous Incheon landing. The momentum shifted. Uh, and the U.S. goal was that um, all the troops would be home by Christmas uh, of 1950. And yet, then we had Chinese volunteers pouring across the border, pushing the U.S. back. Uh, and essentially, we had a civil war that was combined with a kind of war involving U.S. Uh, and uh, Chinese forces. I mean, you could almost call it a proxy war. That's right. Um, and, and, you know, what was remarkable to me, and, and as a statistic that was provided on Ken Burns' Vietnam War series, is that they believe that a million Chinese um, uh, soldiers died in the Vietnam or in the, the Korean War? It was an enormous sacrifice on the part of both the Chinese and, of course, uh, many North Koreans uh, died as well, um, proportionally much greater than the losses faced on the U.S. and South Korean side. Right. I, I, so, so when people say, you know, China, you know, I think they need to understand that for many Chinese, they think about a million uh, souls lost um, in this conflict to maintain a North Korea and um, it, it puts it in a historic context that I think sometimes we don't appreciate or understand the kind of blood and treasure that was sacrificed by the, by the Chinese in their support of North Korea. It definitely puts an interesting perspective on the fact that today we're trying to secure Chinese help, essentially to um, put pressure on North Korea, which had at one time been precisely the country that China had intervened to keep in, in business. And, and the reality is that we've basically had a military presence in South Korea ever since the Korean War. Um, and um, I've been actually to South Korea. I've actually been to the DMZ. And when I was there, I've, I've been to a lot of places where you look at the relationship, military to military relationships. I, I have never seen a place where it's, uh, it's, it's uh, more seamless 
than South Korea. Obviously, the the um, the Rock Republic of Korea is is very engaged with the American military. And so, um, how would you describe the the both the um, relationship, military to military relationship, but also our diplomatic relationship with South Korea and the commitment that we've made to South Korea? Um. The U.S.-South Korea relationship is very closely coordinated. And, of course, the North Korean threat has, I think, been the driver for a lot of that coordination. Uh, And so, uh, essentially, uh, on the peninsula, U.S. forces Korea uh, have to be prepared uh, together with their South Korean comrades uh, to do what they call fight tonight. So level of readiness has to be very high. Uh, Likewise, uh, on the diplomatic coordination side, basically, if you're going to fight a military war, you also have to have uh, the political leaders uh, at the top level uh, in agreement with each other. Uh, And so the U.S.-South Korea political relationship and the status of that has uh, a huge impact on uh, our ability to um, conduct effective deterrence and defense of South Korea precisely because North Korea is really looking for the wedges. Right. Looking for the gaps. Well, and, it, 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 and when people say, "Well, you know, this is a peninsula," you know that that uh, what is the risk to American lives? Currently, we have over uh, twenty-eight thousand American troops on the Korean Peninsula. That's right, and there's a civilian population of Americans that is the size of Albany, New York, uh, in Seoul. Uh, and so there are stakes uh, for Americans uh, who um, um, are there, I think, in part uh, as an extension of the defense relationship and defense commitment that the United States has made. And, and we should be proud. Of course, the South Koreans are the ones who have really built up their economic success. Uh, but it's the security commitment by the United States that has really enabled an incredible transformation from what we saw at the time of the Korean War to the modern uh, industrialized um, accomplishments of South Korea today. It's it's an incredible trading partner for agricultural products. And so we pay pretty close attention to South Korea because it's a great market for what we grow in states like North Dakota and really across the entire Midwest. Um, but, you know, I, one thing where I, where I saw the military-to-military relationship being seamless, I was there when uh, – Prime Minister was still um, uh, Park, and now we've had this transition. Uh, how would you describe, um, you know, those two uh, leaders of South Korea and where we are right now with this transition after uh, Park uh, basically was invited to leave? Yes. Well, what we saw, I think, was an incredible testimony to the success of South Korea's democratic process over the course of the past year because they had a president who, in fact, had been um, uh, impeached uh, on corruption charges, uh, and that um, impeachment was upheld, that's right, by the uh, Constitutional Court. Uh, And then they had an election within 60 days uh, with a new president, Moon, who has a completely different ideological perspective uh, and kind of agenda uh, from Park, uh, but who, in fact, has committed himself uh, to work pretty closely with the U.S. administration because we're the guarantor and because he understands that uh, 
to preserve uh, South Korea's security, uh, he needs to work very closely with the U.S. administration. Well, it was interesting because we saw the Patriot batteries, um, basically American military um, uh, defense mechanism um, protecting the uh, South Korea. But we also knew that at the time, a lot of controversy around deployment of the THAAD batteries. Um, China was not happy. Russia was not happy that we brought that kind of um, uh, defense to um, South Korean peninsula. In fact, after after we moved him in place, uh, President Moon um, suggested that we couldn't fully deploy them. I think that attitude has changed, as I understand it, um, since these recent threats from North Korea. Uh, That's right. Frankly, because of the threats uh, from North Korea, the opposition to deployment of the additional um, uh, components of that system has Uh, gone away. And a couple of weeks ago, they were put into place there uh, in South Korea. Yeah, it just took a while. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, it took uh, maybe a couple months longer than we wanted, but it got done. Right. And it got done, unfortunately, because of the aggression on the north. Let's turn to the north, because I think a lot of people, you know, uh, when when I was there and we were doing the briefings, you know, there was always this um, this ongoing attitude that um, can Kim Jong-un was like this crazy guy. You know, he just was like a a small child with a toy and um, just like playing with it and loved being disruptive. And and what the American military experts and and the regional experts, you know, were quick to, to push back against that characterization of this leader as somebody who was immature or, or um, uh, not capable of making a rational thought. I, and just if you can give us your impression of not only him, but his father and his grandfather and, and how we got to this point, and what do you think motivates um, the leader of North Korea to continue to do such provocative acts in the face of, um, of surely risking an incredible um, loss of life in North Korea in the case that we would have to engage. I mean, this is really a kind of complicated story, but in a way, what's interesting is that with this father-to-son-to-grandson leadership, uh, North Korean strategic principles have kind of remained the same and have moved in a straight line. Uh, And part of their worldview has been, uh, as a result of the hostility uh, toward the United States and toward South Korea, uh, first, they want Korean unification on their terms. Uh, but also they have uh, an anti-imperialist view that is baked into their propaganda, uh, and it's very strong. Uh, And so they see the U.S. as kind of the denier of the North Korean goal of unification, even as we see ourselves as the guarantor of South Korean freedom and democracy. Uh, And then they also see themselves as incredibly vulnerable. And I think that especially for Kim Jong-un, because of his relative weakness, Uh, You know, the real tragedy of what has happened over the course of the past five years is that his own personal vulnerability and uncertainty about his ability to consolidate power has led him to grab onto the nuclear weapons strategy uh, in an even stronger way uh, and push harder uh, as a way of trying to, frankly, in part, defend against the threat from American uh, capabilities. Uh, But then also it's a strategy to try to push the U.S. off uh, by kind of – I think what Kim Jong-un said last week was to create equilibrium so the U.S. would not be able to threaten militarily anymore. 
Well, it's 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 fascinating because I think a lot of people would look at this and say he's just a provocateur. He's just you know trying to be relevant in the region, and and you know the the thought you just expressed is what we hear from experts all the time. He's trying to consolidate fi- uh, power, and we know that the surest way to to keep power internally is to have an external threat that you say only I can uh, uh, only I can defeat that external threat only if we. We um, use our resources this way. But what's striking to me, because I think fundamentally economic power always always is as significant, if not more significant, than military power, there is no economic power in North Korea. When you compare it to that that robust and, and thriving democracy that has produced incredible um, uh, an incredible economy in South Korea, you can see the results of isolation and communism in North Korea. And so, um, you know, there was a statement recently um, where Putin uh, said, look, he, he, they'll eat grass before they give this up. Um, do you share... Uh, uh, the, the Russian view of um, uh, North Korean motivation? The North Koreans have endured incredible hardship um, in, um, with the focus of achieving this regime goal of sustaining itself uh, and also potentially uh, expanding its capability to threaten uh, its neighbors. And so, I mean, one problem is that this regime inherently, because of the nature and structure of the political system, which uh, is a dictatorship and it requires political loyalty, it actually needs to generate external conflict in order to be able to um, control the people. And so that's one problem is that North Korea basically under current leadership is inherently unsta- uh, unstable or requires volatility uh, t- uh, from the outside uh, or uh, to generating volatility in order to generate threat from the outside in order to sustain its domestic power. It makes it this makes it incredibly difficult to see a path forward because you want to make sure that they under that that North Korea and hopefully the people understand how how much security is being risked by this activity but it is in fact that that um, reaction that then adds to and exacerbates um, uh, uh, finding a solution and then you take the history of China in the region and say where where can we apply pressure and we you know we're going we're going to talk about maybe what some of the solutions are beyond military intervention but if i were going to ask you you know that to to give me the three things um, that you think um, the people in the United States need to understand about the Korean Peninsula, both North and South, and this challenge that we're up against from a fact basis, from a historic basis, what would what would you say? Oh, that's a very interesting question. First of all, I think South Korea has a, been a tremendous success. Uh, and if you think about the Korean Peninsula as a kind of political science experiment, it shows uh, the power of integration versus isolation. Uh, in the north. Uh, But secondly, I think Kim Jong-un really has been able to exploit uh, access to the Chinese economy in particular, uh, even despite his political isolation, in order to build this threat. Uh, And of course, the problem is that they're so isolated that they have only self-defense as the means by which to um, uh, be able to try to secure themselves. Uh, and the isolation in the end ends up being a driver for this confrontation. 
Uh, and then I guess the third one is really that um, at, at present we're on a trajectory toward uh, conflict. Uh, and if both sides keep on going in the same direction, it's going to be unavoidable. So we really need to redouble our efforts to find a way to change the trajectory of North Korea. I, I think the way of doing it is actually by trying to generate internal debates within North Korea uh, rather than using external forces uh, that they actually that, that actually feed the leadership. Uh, the question is in a system that um, makes political loyalty so paramount, where are the seams that we can exploit in order to generate internal dissension that might actually result in Kim Jong-un having to yeah. change direction? And if we're not successful adding to the paranoia of the North Korean leader. Yeah. Um, and, and, and so um, we desperately um, need to think about all options and be prepared for all options. This is truly a very, very serious security threat against the interest of our country. Uh, that's right. We really need to, and I think that it's happening, look at every possible avenue by which to try to address this issue. Uh, pressure is uh, one part of it, but it also we need, uh, we, we really need some communication and dialogue. Yeah. Uh, even though um, Kim Jong-un may seem like a caricature in the movies and in the popular perception, uh, we desperately need, and he needs, external input uh, and not just internal uh, focus on his domestic situation as a way to try to change the situation. Well, Scott, it's fascinating, and, and thank you so much. I know that people will be very interested in what you have to say, and I want to encourage you to continue to think about, you know, I, I, you know, not every idea that we that 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 could result in a good outcome has been thought of. I, I mean, I think everybody likes to say, oh, we've tried everything, we know, and, and I just keep thinking there's got to be some place out there that um, we can find um, resolution of, uh, to this without loss of life. Uh, the stakes are so high, we really have to redouble our efforts to find mm -hmm. that solution. Thank you so much for coming on The Hot Dish um, with Heidi, and um, we look forward to ongoing conversations. Great. Thanks for the invitation. Now to talk about where we go from here, we are so incredibly fortunate to have Michelle Flournoy with us today. Michelle is the co-founder and CEO of the Center for a New American Security, which is a nonpartisan think tank dedicated to developing strong, pragmatic, and principled national security policies. Um, she served in multiple presidential administrations, most recently as President Obama's Undersecretary um, for Defense uh, of Defense Policy, excuse me, uh, and is uh, was the number three official in the Pentagon. But I will tell you this. Um, I've asked Michelle to testify for me uh, uh, a couple times in banking on, on some national security issues. Um, she has bipartisan, incredible respect in on the Hill for what she knows and for her commitment to American security. And so I'm so grateful that you um, could find time to join me. Senator, it's really great to be here. Thank I'm, you for including me. I'm a huge fan. And, and I think, um, you know, we're looking for people who are thinking. 
And we're looking for people who have a history, who understand the incredible complexities of what we're up against as it comes uh, to the North Korean threat. Um, obviously, a lot of insecurity. And I talked about how many North Dakotans served in the Korean War who feel a little discouraged right now that that, um, that security that they thought they were bringing to the Korean Peninsula and really to the Asian region is, is hasn't lasted longer than um, it should have, you know, when you look forward. And so um, you told me a story before we, we uh, started joining about um, some of your early days in the Pentagon and what you were hearing. I'd love to just open it up and let you do some introductory remarks and then we can have a dialogue. Sure. Well, I was just saying that North Korea is one of those really difficult, persistent, uh, complex problems that I think many administrations have struggled with without good outcomes or good answers. I was relating to you that my very first uh, briefing in the Pentagon back in 1993 was about the imminent collapse of North Korea. Well, here we are several decades later, and that is obviously not come to pass. But what we've seen over those several decades now is a pattern of uh, uh, behavior. Uh, North Korean provocation to try to get attention from the global community, and particularly the United States, but also a very dogged pursuit of nuclear weapons capability. I think uh, this regime and the one before it uh, and the one before that all saw nuclear weapons as their ultimate survival card, meaning that if it ever came to a conflict on the Korean Peninsula again, the thing that would help the regime survive, the ace in the hole they could ultimately play to survive, would be threatening the use of nuclear weapons. Now, more recently, you've seen that coupled with the pursuit of an intercontinental ballistic missile capability, a missile that could actually strike the United States. And there, I think the North Korean leadership wants to be sure that it can try to stop the U.S. from intervening in a conflict, from going to the defense of our ally uh, in South Korea by threatening U.S. territory proper. So this is a really tough problem and one that's been with us for quite some time without resolution. If you look into it, let's look backward for a moment. And and I hate to do this because there's always the blame game that's played. You know, so and so should have done something. So and so shouldn't have done should have done something else. But let's let's do it this way. What lessons have we learned from other interventions or other things that we've done that we should not forget going forward dealing with North Korea? I think the first thing is that this is not an issue that the U.S. can solve bilaterally with North Korea. We have to take account uh, of the interests of our ally, South Korea. They're the ones that are living with North Korea as our neighbor. They are the hostage with the gun pointed to their head in terms of any action we take that would provoke a North Korean response. That response is likely to rain down artillery or rockets on the civilian population of Seoul that is right up against that border. Um, and so we have to th approach this hand in glove, arm in arm with the South Koreans. Secondly, um, China probably has the most leverage of any of the regional powers. It doesn't have as much leverage as it used to have, but it does have some. 
North Korea relies on China for economic uh, trade. It relies on China for a lot of its uh, energy supplies, and it relies on China for diplomatic protection. Um, and so China does have some leverage, um, and we need to use our diplomacy to, and our engagement to get China to use that leverage. China also fears uh, instability in North Korea. I mean, if we were to say, you know, what are your priorities? We would say denuclearize the peninsula. That's the number one priority. Stability is probably second. For the Chinese, it's stability first because they don't want refugees coming across their border and then denuclearization if we can get to it. Um, so I think the, the most important lesson is we've got to approach this uh, regionally. I would include Japan. I would include others in that, those discussions. Secondly, we've got to be careful not to keep buying the same horse over and over and over again because we've had, I think, five or six different agreements with North Korea. And each time they have abrogated the agreement and we've had to bargain again to kind of regain the position of where we are. That said, I think the most important thing we need to try to do is stop the nuclear testing and stop the development of the ICBM that could hit the United States as soon as possible. And I think pursuing those as an immediate goal should be the priority of both our coercive measures, sanctions and military moves, and our diplomacy. Well, we've had a lot of discussion in banking, and I've I, uh, you know, had a lot of discussion with the Treasury, Treasury officials about secondary sanctions, about whether you can, in fact, have an effective sanctions uh, uh, regime against North Korea that will actually change outcomes. When, when you look at it, um, what more can we do in Congress? What more can we do using strictly sanctions? to um, uh, bring some kind of uh, at least diplomatic opening to, to um, de-escalate uh, the, the tests and to de-escalate the, the tension? You know, I do think we should at least look at secondary sanctions that would affect the Chinese entities most involved with cross-border trade with North Korea, with energy supply with North Korea, with any kind of provision of uh, military know-how to North Korea. All of that does occur. But I believe that that alone won't be enough. What, what we really need is a high-level kind of presidential envoy that goes over and engages President Xi and says, look, we are at a fork in the road. Down one road is we band together, we use our combined leverage, and we get North Korea to stop this pursuit, um, these tests, and we get them to stop on the road. And then we can try to figure out how to get to the longer-term goal of denuclearization and a peaceful reunification of the peninsula and all of those ultimate objectives. Down the other road, if you do not use your leverage and you do not engage seriously, the U.S. is going to have to take matters into its own hands. And that means a military buildup in the region to protect our allies, South Korea, and Japan and our own forces who are stationed there. It's going to be more U.S. assets present, more of a defense buildup right on your border, and you are not going to like that. Um, so that's your choice. Which reality do you want to live in? And I think that would be more consequential if we could get the Chinese to make the right choice than any effect we're going to get from um, sanctions alone. Sanctions have to be part of the package, but they have to be leveraged with some serious diplomacy. And that's what I'm not seeing yet. 
Well, what's what's interesting to me is that this becomes a little bit of a chicken and an egg. I mean, if you begin the military buildup, which was part of the THAAD uh, uh, deployment, but you see now more more um, exercises, more uh, movements of of, of um, the Navy moving in, more more show of force. Um, and and the question becomes: Is that enough for China to understand that there this binary choice may be narrowing um, over over a very uh, short period of time? And so time is of the essence. You know, the the Chinese have been working and dealing with the Koreans for generation and you know for centuries, and and I'm sure they have a much longer view than we do about this. But I think everyone in Congress and everyone in the United States of America feels a sense of urgency given the rapid um, uh, uh, progress that we believe we're seeing with the deployment of very serious weapon. Yeah, no, I do think that that's the primary message of the diplomacy has got to be, this is a sense of urgency. This is something that can't wait. This is something that we really need you to engage on. But again, um, I haven't seen that kind of effort. The, the, the value of coercive pressure, whether it's military posture changes, building up defenses, putting on additional sanctions, is the value of that is when you tra- uh, convert it into some diplomatic proce- progress where you change a behavior of one of the actors. And I think that should be the focus of, number one, changing North Korean behavior, but all close, closely aligned with that changing Chinese behavior. The one thing that gives me hope is there was a chapter early on in the Obama administration where we had a miniature version of this. We had a whole series of North Korean provocations, including the sinking of the Chonan and, and so forth, terrible loss of life for the South Koreans. We started building up our defensive posture, started exercising more, working more closely. It was that military set of moves that got the Chinese to say, enough, we do not like how this is going, and they cut off fuel oil to to the DPRK, to the North Koreans. And that is what brought them back to the negotiating table at that time. So I think, you know, we have seen a version of this work before. Um, My worry is that if you simply escalate the pressure um, and the rhetoric, and you don't have a diplomatic channel, you're setting yourselves up for a much higher risk of miscalculation, that we could get into a war, that North Korea could misinterpret an exercise as a mobilization. They could, you know, that, that we could get into something that we don't really intend to get into, but absent some kind of diplomatic channel we stumble into it. You know, it's interesting. Senator Tester and I recently sent a letter to the um, President and State Department asking them to appoint a special envoy, someone who could be that person. I had to laugh today. I talked to um, Senator George Mitchell, who was so successful in uh, Northern Ireland, and I s- joked with him that I was calling him so that um, he, he could accept a mission in, in North Korea. But it really has to take someone who they know has the ear of this president and and who is uh, who who has great knowledge of the region great knowledge of the history and also has some credibility with the Chinese um, so I have a nomination but do will, you he I, will hate me for okay, it. okay my, my former boss Secretary of Defense Bob Robert Gates 
I think has meets all of those criteria. Now he will, I will, you know, he will, <laughs> he will hate me forever for suggesting him. But, but I actually think he, it, it's someone with that kind of gravitas, right. I, someone so, with that kind of credibility right. on all sides. Um, here with the Chinese and certainly should should certainly have that with the North Koreans as well. I couldn't agree with you more, and I, I love your suggestion. And I think one of the things that, that makes him incredibly valuable is that when he goes, they know he was the Secretary of Defense for not only George W. Bush, but also for um, President Obama, and therefore, you know, kind of has bridged that world, has been there, um, has, has, has incredible experience experience. That's what we need. And I'm not trying to take anything away from Secretary Tillerson, but the world's a big place and the Secretary of State has a lot of demands. And as we know, the State Department is struggling right now um, with staffing and struggling right now with all the challenges um, throughout the world. And and so um, any chance you think we could convince uh, <laughs> Secretary Gates to I'll, engage? I'll let you reach out and make that <laughs> phone call after we finish here. <laughs> <laughs> maybe I'll, maybe I will. You never know. I called George Mitchell. I, I mean, I, I truly, honestly believe that um, that we, if if we, God forbid, would have to take um, direct military action, that there has to be an appreciation and an understanding in the American public and certainly among policymakers that that is only done as an absolute fundamental last resort. Mm-hmm. And I and also um, to prepare people for the costs because it's hard to imagine a kinetic strike uh, against North Korea's nuclear arsenal and their missile arsenal um, that would not trigger some kind of counterattack on South Korea. And I don't think that potential cost or price for denying the North Koreans some elements of their nuclear and missile arsenals, I don't think that's been explained to the American people. I don't think people appreciate that this this there's no such thing as a surgical strike that uh, does not engender some response, uh, at least not in my years of reviewing pl- contingency plans for this kind of thing. It's going in with any sizable kinetic strike is going to war, and we have we have to be prepared for that. And and, and I haven't South heard an honest discussion of that yet. Um, and if this administration gets to the point where they think that they have to take military action to prevent. Uh, to deny North Korea this capability, then they need to prepare the American people for what's going to be and involved. And South Korea. And South Korea. And Japan. Yes. And people of Guam. And and so we, we, we are, I, when you've been there, you see how, how um, it's not just this threat, but it's the conventional weapon threat that, mm-hmm. that could play such a, uh, you know, which would place the whole um, area in, turmoil and result in really almost an intractable um, uh, problem for us. And and so I'm not saying that we should ever take any option off the table, but I am saying that um, as, we, as we deliberate and move through these steps and our thinking, I, I want to know that everything that possibly could be done is being done. And, and, you know, I can appreciate and understand um, how complicated it is, it is in the region. But, but it also, 
as I said uh, with our last guest, you know, has every conceivable idea already been thought of? Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, you always mm-hmm. have to ask yourself mm-hmm. that question because I think people who do this over a long period of time without new eyes, you don't always see maybe some opportunity. And and certainly, I, I, I mean, I, 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 I'm convinced that the Chinese government would prefer that North Korea not be this provocative. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and occasionally they do sort of put pressure on them to calm things down. Well, you have just been wonderful to come here and um, keep speaking. And, you know, if um, if uh, Secretary Gates gets an invitation to do this and feels uh, as he uh, uh, as we know he is the call of great patriotism in a in a very difficult time to come and serve again, I'll blame you. Right. Well, I'll give him, I'll give him a heads up and I'll put his name in the hat. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'll put your name in the hat, too. No. <laughs> you know, so be careful. Um, you know, frequently when you nominate someone else, you just right. might be the person being asked. But I, I think definitely we need to we need to have uh, the the um, the assurances as the American public that everything that can be done is being done. And, you know, um, it's complicated, our relationship with China, um, both in terms of trade, you know, China and emerging economic power and emerging power in the South China Sea. Um, you know, they, they are, they are provocative in their own way. Mm-hmm. And, and so, um, this is not someone um, like the NATO alliance that we're dealing with. We have to understand that there is tension. There's uh, uh, Chinese and American tension, and this isn't us being able to call on our, our great friends, the Chinese, to do this for us. We need to figure out how the China, you know, what's going to motivate the Chinese to come to the table and exert this kind of pressure. And I think sometimes, um, uh, you know, we think if we simply ask, it should be done, and we have to be more strategic and more diplomatic. Absolutely. Absolutely. You are great to come in and talk. And thank thank you you so much. And I I know this won't be the last time I talk to the North Dakota folks about um, the challenges that we have in in, uh, uh, North Korea. Um, But uh, it is always great when you can uh, call on people who have dedicated their life to the security of our country as you have, Michelle. Thank you. And we are so grateful. Thank you. You're an amazing, you're an amazing patriot. Thank you. You bet. Take care. Uh, It is great thanks to both of my guests for sharing their time and their insight with all of us. Uh, It's clear that North Korea poses a grave threat to our national security, and we must act quickly to compel Kim Jong-un to move away from his destabilizing behavior. We need smart, tough national security strategies to keep North Dakota and American families safe. And I truly appreciate both my guests joining me in this informative discussion on the challenges we face as we move forward.